And that means that we will, it will make the church, the church body, not only more ready for the coming of Christ, because that's where Peter's looking. He's looking at his own death, and he's also looking at the coming of Christ. And we are to prepare ourselves for that. It, would also, it will also make the church more discerning. In the present situation, in any present situation the church is in, it will make the church more discerning to know when they are being duped by something that is not true. So this continual growth will take place by the regular transformation of the mind, of the will, of the affections with Scripture. Why? Because Peter already said Scripture is reliable, it's illuminating, it's revealing, it's trustworthy. We don't have to go anywhere else for truth. It's right here in the Word of God. The Apostle Peter has already confirmed to his readers something more sure than authentic experience, more sure, a more sure witness God has given us, and the more sure witness is the very scriptures we hold in our hands. As it says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 in your Bible, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. So the scriptures are communication that has been ordained by God's authority and produced by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. All scripture is inspired by God. It is breathed out from God. It did not originate with men. So the scriptures are for the true church, the only source of authority that we need. We don't need anything else. We don't need any other books. If there is no other books in the world, and libraries that are theological libraries are filled with books about this one book. Matter of fact, there's endless amount of books. But even if we had none of those books and we had the Word of God, we would be fine as long as we studied it. So the great danger that faces the church in every generation, is the danger of false teachers. The spirit of the age in which we live kind of likes the idea that when it comes to spiritual matters and matters of truth, things are fluid. Whatever you want to think, whatever you think truth is, make up truth yourself, right? And that's your truth. The only problem is there's no way to measure that. Because our minds are not the authority. Our minds are not the measuring point. It's the scriptures that measure everything. So no one has arrived at the truth on their own apart from the word of God. So the idea that the Christian message should be kept pliable and ambiguous seems especially attractive to young people especially young people that leave home and go to university or just leave home and do other things because they're in tune to the culture. And with all this social media, they are more in tune to what people are thinking all over the world. And so they're kind of in love with the spirit of this age, and they can't stand to have any kind of authoritative truth applied to their situation with any kind of precision or correctness. So they like the worldly lifestyle. They like the unholy mindset. They like 
the ungodly behavior, even though they are not calling it those things, but it's actually a poison. Uh, and that poison has been injected into the evangelical church. So we need to be discerning. That's what we need to be doing. And that's where the scripture brings us this morning. In chapter 2 of Second Peter, notice in verse number 1 through 3, and let me read that. It says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So we have been looking at discerning the threats of false teachers to the church in every generation. So we are and, and, and asking the question, why are false teachers a threat to the church in every generation? Well, we have been looking at for at least six reasons false teachers are a threat to the church. Let me just go through the ones we already went through and then end with what I'm going to focus on this morning, or the last two. First of all, that false teachers cleverly teach destructive heresies, and that's found in verse number one, who secretly introduce destructive heresies. Secondly, false teachers denied the God of the Bible, where it says in verse one, even denying the master that bought them, that these false teachers are denying the Lord God, their creator, who made them, and as creator, he owns them, and false teachers claim to be part of the household of God, but actually refuse to submit to the master of the house, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what they do, they actually deny the sovereign master by just not obeying him. They also deny the sovereign master in, by teaching that which is not according to God's word. They also deny the master in their behavior by living a sinful lifestyle because false things produce a false lifestyle, meaning a sinful lifestyle. So they live in contradiction to his life and his teaching, the Lord Jesus Christ. So false teachers knew the truth. It's not that they never knew the truth. They knew the truth, however, turned from the truth. They are professors in the word, but they reject the authority of the creator and actually deny his redemptive offer and purchase. They say actually no to the one who has the power and the authority. It is not like they ever really genuinely were saved. These are apostates. And an apostate are people who leave, the, are not necessarily people who leave the institutionalized church. They leave the truth, and often they stay in the church, but they leave the truth. Even holding up their Bible and says, we believe it, but never doing it. And so we can't be people like that. An apostate is a defector from the truth, someone who has known the truth and given even some affirmation to the truth and perhaps even proclaimed it for a while and then rejected it in the end. And in the end, the apostate is opposed to the truth and undermines it and goes against it. And so... Apostates are definitely in the church. False teaching really has inoculated people against the real gospel. 
multiplying really falsehoods and heartfelt disciples that fill the church who are actually unbelievers. A lot of unbelievers in the church, they say they're Christians, but they're not. A third thing is that false teachers bring certain imminent judgment upon themselves. Chapter 2, verse 1. Bringing swift destruction upon themselves. The destiny of these false teachers and those who follow them is destruction. It's not that they know that or even acknowledge it or, or especially do not teach it. Their teachings are destructive to others. And now that destruction from Scripture comes back upon them. Uh, and of course, their condemnation has long been hanging over their heads. And just because they don't believe there will be a judgment doesn't mean that they're exempt from it. Fourthly, false teachers seduce many to follow their evil teachings and shameful lifestyle. Chapter 2, verse 2, many will follow their sensuality. False teachers are popular they have a big following. Many will derive guidance from these teachers because they're everywhere. They're on the airwaves, they're on TV, they're on social media, they're everywhere. But they move outside the church and the Word of God to pursue their false ideas and practices. They pick from different sources on what they're going to say. But if you notice from Scripture, Many will follow their sensuality, and that is the reason why it's very popular, because they appeal to the base desires and felt needs of people. They advocate the full freedom of the flesh, unbridled living, live the way you want, and God will bless you. Matter of fact, that's part of God's blessing, to be free to live the way you want. These false teachers were propagating a wicked and shameful lifestyle centering mainly on shameful immorality, says it all over Second Peter, twisted sexual desires. They indulge in evil pleasure, and they commit, finally, adultery. Having eyes, chapter 2, verse 14, full of adultery, and never cease from sin. So no false teacher is going around carrying a sign that says, follow me, I'm a false teacher. They're not doing that. Rather, they parade around saying that we have the truth. And usually they combine some good and bad with, uh, to make really propaganda more exciting. It sells well, uh, even in the world. So false teachers believe that following their own lusts and showing no restraint were signs of maturity, were signs of being free. But... 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19 says about them, they promise freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what man is overcome by this, he is enslaved, enslaved to their own sin, blind in their own sin, dead in their own sin. So the highest goal these teachers really offer is for their followers to pursue the passing pleasures of, of sin that the world offers and Satan surely pushes on people. And for them, the evidence of the Holy Spirit's influence in that person's life is material prosperity, mindless emotionalism, 
seeking spiritual experiences and also supposed miracles encounters. And if they don't encounter those things, they are accused of not having enough faith. So instead of the real evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in their life, that believers are to grow in spiritual maturity, they're to practice holiness and godliness and Christ-likeness, where the Holy Spirit of God living in them convicts them of their heart of sin, combats with them against worldly lust, and cultivates in them spiritual fruit that we can actually see in someone's life. According to Scripture, someone claiming to be a Christian and a teacher for God, if they display immoral character, it actually invalidates the gospel message, which is really characteristic of false teachers and false prophets of every generation and our day also. So the result and the effect of such godless living, living that is so contrary to Jesus' life and what the transformative gospel of Christ actually produces. And what is that? Well, Peter dealt with it in in chapter 1, in verse number 5 and 6, where he says, For this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, Supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. And if you grow in those things, you will not fall, but you will actually mature the way God designed it, and you will grow in godliness and holiness. A next thing, a fifth thing, verse Number two of chapter two of Second Peter, by false teachers, the way of truth is slandered. Now, I dealt with this last time, but I have some other things I want to say before I go to the last one. It says, because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. The way of truth is synonymous with the word of God and the gospel. Specific truth that leads to true faith in Christ And that would lead to a sanctified, maturing, godly life. Not a perfect life, but a godly life. And because these false teachers have actually abandoned the gospel message, they blaspheme God. And the gospel message actually gets a black eye because of the way they present things and the way they live. They malign the word of God. That is the word blasphemy in the Greek. It means to speak injuriously towards someone or something. It's to defame the reputation of God and the gospel message. So true Christianity is really given a bad reputation and condemned by outsiders who see. Now, some recent examples that the way of truth can be maligned is when the word of God actually is twisted. It's used, but it's twisted, and it's distorted. Now, by way of example, I'm going to use the word of faith uh, movement. A man named Creflo Dollar, he pastors in Texas, preached a sermon called Jesus' Growth into Sonship. 
on December 8th, 2002. Well, he was wrong. Now, the reason why they can say stuff like that, because they have a little doctrine that I mentioned already called the little God's doctrine, right? That we're just, we, we are begetting by God, and so therefore we produce what God produces, and that means we're little gods. So all kinds of doctrine comes out of that, that particular doctrine that they have. Now, he was wrong because Jesus was the only begotten son. There is no one like Jesus in this respect. He did not have to grow into it. That is being the son. He was the son of God. Also, the word of faith preachers claim that Jesus is not the only begotten son of God. They are too. That's blasphemy. Kenneth Copeland said the same thing. I am too the son of God. Larry Huck said the same thing. Jesus is not the only begotten Son of God. I am too. Paula White, Jesus not, is not the only begotten Son of God. I am too. So see, th their doctrines, their false doctrines permeate the whole of their system, and therefore it becomes corrupt, and it becomes something we ought not to engage in, at least to follow it. Scripture tells us we are children of God by adoption. We are slaves to sin and have become sons by adoption. It says that in Galatians. It says in Galatians 4, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And it goes on to say, therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. We are brought in to the family of God. We are brought in to uh, the family of God in the sense that God saves us. He snatches us from the kingdom of darkness and brings us into his family, and we become his children, therefore calling the Father now for the first time our Father. And then Ephesians 5 says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Another word of faith preacher, Jesse Duplantis, claims that God asks him for advice and counsel. Now, this is also blasphemy. And the reason why it's blasphemy, because the scriptures tell us in Romans chapter 11, verse 33 through verse 36, this is at the end of a great uh, teaching on doctrine, Paul was so overcome by the doctrine that he was teaching and also by God's plan of redemption, not only for Gentiles but for Jews, he broke out in a doxology. And this is what he says in Romans 11, 33. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, un unfathomable his ways. Who has, known, who has known the mind of the Lord and who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that he might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. See, the apostle Paul breaks out in this doxology because he was dumbfounded by the sovereignty of God in his plan of salvation for both the Jews and the Gentiles. And so he breaks out in this because... God doesn't need any counsel from men. We cannot give God counsel. 
We have nothing to say to God. We have nothing to offer him. No man does. There's another man called Miles Monroe. He said, prayer is giving God permission. God can only do what we give him permission to do. That is also blasphemy. That, that maligns the truth. Why? Because this is what the scriptures actually tell us. God can do what he, whatever he wants to do. He does not need our permission for anything. Psalm 115 verse 3 says this, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And then Psalm 135 verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. In other words, God doesn't need He doesn't need us to give him permission to do anything because he's God. If we had to give permission for God to do things, he would not be God. We would be God or at least be challenging his sovereignty. Now, those who come under some of these teachers in this Word of Faith movement, like Bill Johnson from Bethel Church in California, a very popular church. A lot of the music that is on the Christian radio comes out of that church, Hillsong, Bethel Music. Uh, you don't even know you're listening to it to sometime, sometimes. Well, Amanda Lindsay Cook, she's a worship leader at Bethel Church in Redlands, California. On the 18th of August in 2019, she quoted a, an Islamic mystic on her Twitter feed. Jaal Ad-Dimin Muhammad Rumi, a 13th century Sufi mystic. Islamic mysticism practices a form of getting closer to God called Sufi dancing or Sufi swirling in which they spin and swirl to the music, working themselves up into a frenzy See, the worship leader, maybe under her, implemented Sufi swirling into their worship service. And she said in that service, the Lord wants us to spin today. And she quotes Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. And she says that in the Hebrew, the Hebrew means to spin with Wild, violent emotion. Well, this is what Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17 actually says. It says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. It doesn't say anything in the English about spinning with wild, violent emotions, so I looked it up in the Hebrew. And it does not say anything like that there either. Not even close. So this Bethel Church female worship leader intentionally twisted or 
ignorantly twisted and used scripture to support practicing a form of Eastern Islamic mysticism. That is blasphemy. That is not taking, uh, taking the word of God seriously. It is taking it out of context and twisting it, and it is distorting and actually causing people to get the wrong impression of who God is and what we're supposed to do in worship. Syncretistically blending truth with error, which when it is done, the way of truth is maligned. The way of truth is blasphemed. Second Peter said it well. In chapter 3, verse 16, if you care to look there, it says in chapter 3, verse 16 of Second Peter, as also in all his letters, speaking to them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of Scripture to their own destruction. So as you see there in that particular passage of Scripture, that people take the Word of God and twist it and distort it, and they do it to the destruction of themselves and those who hear them. So false teachers subvert unsuspecting people who usually are taken up by the music without discernment. A lot of Christian music, as I already said, that is played and liked today comes out of the Bethel Church and the Hillsong uh, music. Bethel Church is not a Christian organization. These are spiritists practicing Eastern mysticism, setting aside the Word of God while using it and distorting the Scriptures. So this is very popular. That's why I'm bringing this one up. Now, if you take your Bibles, turn to Amos. Amos is a, a, a minor prophet. It's about in the middle of your Bible. It's after... Daniel, Joel, Joel, uh, Daniel, Joel, and then, of course, Amos. And I'd want you to see something here, because the prophet Amos, while you're looking there, preaching to the northern kingdom of Israel, and that northern kingdom of Israel at that time was politically strong, was economically strong, and was spiritually in rebellion to God. And at the same time, they were still going to the temple. They were still offering up the festivals and being involved with them. They were were still offering sacrifices and offerings, and they were still singing. Now, it's interesting that the prophet even brings up singing. But there is a type of singing that God hates amongst his people. It's a singing that is not engaged with truth, and it's a singing that doesn't engage the heart in proper worship of spirit, worshiping God in spirit and in, and in truth. So we, we need as God's people to be discerning and even in this area. And if you notice what it says in Amos chapter 5, Because before we read it, I I just want to say that God rejects their worship in this passage. 
because they're worshiping the, the true God in the wrong way. Their hearts were far from God, and they were worshiping with empty formality. God absolutely hates that. And notice what it says in Amos chapter 5, verse 21 and 22. It says, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Verse 23, take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like water and righteousness like the ever-flowing streams. In other words, God's rejecting their singing. The reason why is they were syncretistically mixing idolatry with, with the true and living God and true worship. They were still going to temple, still doing all those things, but they had no heart. And God hates that. So, so people can sing, they can play music, they can do all those things, but it must be more than that. It must be theologically sound. It must be grounded in Scripture. And uh, it must engage the heart to move the heart to true worship. See, we're to worship God in spirit and in truth. That's what we're supposed to do. So anybody who does stuff like this and calls it true worship is blaspheming God and maligning the word of truth. It says there, because of them, the way of truth will be maligned in 2 Peter. So these false teachers have actually abandoned the gospel message, as I already said, when the world of unbelievers look on the church and see no difference than themselves, and in some cases, worse behavior. What, what do they usually do? This is what they do. They blaspheme God. They blaspheme the whole Christian movement, and the gospel message is again be given a, a black eye because, because behavior and truth go together. It produces a holy and godly lifestyle. Now, that brings me back to Second Peter in chapter 2 in verse number 3, which is the last of the six things that we need to watch out for of the threats to the church in false teaching. And it says this, and the sixth one is this, in their, in, in their greed, false teachers will fabricate, clever, will fabricate actually clever words. Look what it says in verse 3. It says, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. They will exploit you with false words. Now, remember, the Bible is exposing who they really are. They're not saying this about themselves. The Scriptures, the Holy Spirit is revealing to us as the church what we ought to be hearing and to discern what is true and what is error, what is God's way, and what, every, what is every other way. So further, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 14, Peter again says this. He says, having eyes full of adultery that can never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having their a heart trained in greed, accursed children. 
So in other words, that these false teachers, in their greed, they fabricate clever words. So in their greed, they will exploit people. That is the motivation. They're, they're trained in greed. And of course, that word trained there is the word gymnazo, which means to discipline oneself. And so these false teachers have a heart that has been exercised in greed. And it is one that has faithfully practiced greed so that greediness has become natural to them. These false teachers have developed a habit capability. They do it without thinking about it. The false teachers habitually, in other words, behave greedily. So them being well-trained in greed, they make sure they keep the money coming. That's what their motivation is. So they will say anything. They will do anything that they possibly can to keep the money coming. So the great danger with the accumulation of wealth is that it can become one's God in whom one trusts for security, for happiness, and for getting things done. We are never to trust money. Money has, is a tool to be used to honor God and glorify him and used in the right way. False teachers have an idol of gold upon the throne of their heart. The Apostle Paul warned again in this when, when he said in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, for this you know for certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So most false teachers today, as in Peter's day, allow greed and selfishness to rule them. This is one of the main motivations. Now, by way of example, the Trinity Broadcasting Network, the biggest charismatic word of faith radio station in the world, broadcasts 24-7 to more than 100 countries on 70 satellites and more than 18,000 TV channels and cable affiliates. And what is their message? Now, that's a pretty big audience. What is their message? God will give you healing, wealth, and other material blessings in return for money. That's basically their message. Now, saying all that, don't get me wrong, there are false teachers in all denominations. All denominations. So we have to be we have to watch out as believers everywhere we go. So false teachers know how to say things to get money from people. Commentator Grant Osborne communicated their exploitation well when he said he describes it as to take advantage of someone by implying that what is offered is more valuable than it is. Their words are empty. Their words are insincere. 
which is mentioned again in 2 Peter 2.18, for speaking out arrogant words. These false teachers bend and fabricate and, yes, even make up words. They lie to you. They lie to people in order to keep money coming in. So Scripture really exposes them here by using the phrase in our text, false words, because the word false word is the Greek word plastos. The English, we derive the word plastic from, which can be formed and fashioned and shaped and molded any way you want. And figuratively, it means the man-made arguments of false teachers in which they fabricate and make up stuff just to get your money so they can keep their lavish lifestyle going. And you look at their, their lifestyle. It's lavish. And uh, it is way over the top, and that is not what God called us to. God says, I'll provide your basic needs, food, shelter, clothing. That's made, that, that's, that is what he promised he would give us. Now, sometimes he does bless people with wealth, but he also I, uh, gives them wisdom to know how to handle that wealth. So there are counterfeits of the truth. These are counterfeits of the truth. And they pass themselves off as trustworthy, anointed prophets and apostles and spirit-led teachers of God. They are not. And according to Scripture, someone claiming to know God and malign the Scripture in this way and manipulate people for money, if they fail to uphold the Word of God and remain faithful to it, that is a characteristic of a false teacher or a false prophet from the Old Testament. And remember, the definition of prophet from the Old Testament to the New Testament has not changed. It is the same. If they speak a lie, they are not God's spokesman. And I'm not talking about misspeaking. I'm talking about intentionally lying. Everybody misspeaks sometimes. And then you go back and correct yourself, right? Everybody does that. But we're conscious of that. And sometimes we're not. And if we're corrected, we'll say, oh, you know what? I was wrong. I need to step back and correct myself. That's not what it's talking about here. It's talking about it, deliberately lying. That's, that's a different thing. So the true prophet Jeremiah, which we read this morning, who wept over the condition of the people because they desired to believe lies instead of the truth. What did he say? Let me remind you. It says, behold, their ears are closed. They can't listen. Behold, the word of God has become a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. And the Lord says, I'm weary with them. The prophet says that. In verse 15, it says, for from the least of them to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. From the prophet all the way down to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not ashamed at all. They did, even, did not even know how to blush. You know what that is? That's a seared conscience. A conscience that doesn't respond to truth at all whatsoever. 
they can't even blush because of what they've done wrong. Somebody even has a, a mildly trained conscience is guilty and blushes when they are, they are they're caught or they're, they do wrong things. That's not happening here. So prosperity preachers have made true Christianity a laughingstock in the eyes of a watching world. Perhaps Bruce Bickle and Stan Yance said it best. They said the prosperity gospel is Christianity's version of professional wrestling. You know it is fake, but nonetheless, it has entertainment value. However, deadly, it is deadly, it is damnable heresy in which the truth of God's word is intentionally twisted by spiritual swindlers and snake oil salesmen. Surely it's nothing to laugh about. It's actually to be taken very seriously. So, how do you, how does one look at a proper use of money and wealth and contrast it with Paul's teaching? Well, you have to go back to Scripture to see what the Bible says about money and about wealth and how we're to properly understand that part. It's a huge part of our life and to understand it properly. So we are not given into these other ways of thinking. Well, the first thing is that it shows that the prosperity's teachers are teaching people to be earthbound and not homebound. And what I mean by that is that they're teaching people that this earth is it and that we're not to look forward to what God has for us in heaven in the kingdom of God. See, false teachers spend too much time convincing people this earth is their home and that getting stuff is God's blessing. The quickest way to get what you want is by giving to their ministries. Instead, the scriptures teach that we live in temporary hotel rooms. And all our stuff, all our stuff, all our stuff will eventually end up in some landfill, right? Our clothes will end up in the goodwill bin. Our cars will end up in the junkyard or stuck in somebody's backyard rusting. Our Christmas and birthday gifts will end up being given away or put in the garbage. A second thing is that it shows their teaching is naive and is foolish and not wise. See, false teachers feeds the lust for an unhealthy pursuit of money and gain. They seldom warn of the great seductive dangers loving money and longing for it produces. Now, take your Bibles quick and turn to 1 Peter chapter 6 and verse 6, a very uh, common passage of Scripture, well-known to people who read the Scripture. But notice what, what Paul tells young Timothy, who's going to pastor the church at Ephesus, what he says about wealth and money. He says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, but godliness actually is a mean of great gain, 
when accompanied by contentment. Verse 7, for we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Because that, that's may, that may be all God gives you. Verse 9, but those who want want to get rich, fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee these things, O man of God, and pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and perseverance and gentleness. Why did he say flee the pursuit of money and pursue these things? Because those things have great gain. You want to get wealthy? Pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and perseverance and gentleness, and you will be wealthy before God. And you will have a peaceful heart, and you will have the joy of the Lord. And that's what everybody's looking for anyway. And you can't buy that. So when they long for it, it says here they, it leads them to ruin and destruction. Now just think for a minute, minute, greed. How many quarrels have happened over money? I would say probably more than can be numbered. Or how many friendships have have been lost because somebody used money in an incorrect way. You promised to pay your rent with your roommate, and you didn't pay it. And you had an excuse month after month after month, and you were best friends. And three months later, you're not friends because of money. What about broken marriages? How many marriages break up because of money? See, many do. Matter of fact, it's one of the number one reasons when it comes to people divorcing. And then after divorce, there's fighting and feuding about who gets what. Family feuds. I was called one day, a woman in our church came, uh, got saved here, and um, she uh, was growing in the Lord, and she got sick and ended up dying, and uh, her, her uh, family... I, had, I was called to the house, and I went into the house, and the whole family was there. And the whole conversation was about money. And literally, I was ducking from them throwing out. I says, I think it's time for me to go. And I, I, I left out of there, and it was all, and I, was, I kind of offered some uh, wisdom and advice, but it was not being heard. And I, I moved out of there. And, uh, but anyway, that, was, that happens often. And why? Because of money. And yet, what do, script, what do the scriptures teach us when it comes to money? Or, or when it comes to not living as if we're earthbound and that there's not a heaven. Or there's not an eternity. Well, teachers say that we are strangers and we're aliens and we're pilgrims on the earth. Hebrews tells us that. They were strangers and exiles on the earth. But by faith, they held on to the promises that we are ambassadors representing another country while we're on earth. Second Corinthians 5, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though 
God, we're making an appeal through us. We beg you on the behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We're ambassadors in this world. We are, Scripture says that we are citizens of heaven. Philippians tells us that for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Scripture teaches that we have a better country, a city built by God. That's what we're to look forward to. That's where we're to send our treasure to. For it says in Hebrews 11.10, For he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. That's where we're heading. We're heading to an eternal place. We're heading to a place where we're going to be with the Lord forever. There will be a new heaven and new earth, as Second Timothy is, Peter is actually going to teach later on. But that's where we're heading. It also shows that their teaching on money is absolutely unbiblical, completely. All you have to do is go back to the wisdom books like Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and you're going to find that uh, it exposes us as to how we think about money. Actually, Randy Alcorn in his little book, uh, The Treasure Principle, great little book if you ever want to get a chance to read a small little book, but I tell you what, it gives you a, a, a lot of information about how to view money as a believer, and it's very helpful. And I think we passed them out. Don't we pass them out, Dwayne? We passed them out, right? I mean, in members club, we passed them out because it's a really, you know, a lot of people don't read 250-page books anymore, but they'll read a small little book, the blue book, right? And uh, they'll take it with them, get stick in your pocket, and uh, throw it in your glove compartment, you know, wherever you have some time, you read it. But it does give you good information about money. And let me just, just give you some of the things he said uh, concerning uh, money. If you take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes 5, verse number 10, just give you some things... Uh, that is said about uh, from this passage and from what he said. He said the first thing, whoever loves money never has enough. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, look at verse 10. It says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with income. And then he says this too is vanity. In other words, he, the, the more you have, the more you want. That's a basic, sinful human principle, right? When you ask rich people, how much more? I think it was Rockefeller who says, just one cent more. Just one cent more. Even if you have all money, you don't even know what to do with it. Secondly, whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. Look at verse number 10 again. He who loves money, Ecclesiastes 5.10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with with its income, this too is vanity. So the more you have, the less you're satisfied. I don't know about you, but I've experienced that. I look around my, and I see all of my stuff. You know, at one time I was excited to get one thing, and then I it just stuck in the corner. I don't even use it anymore, right? I, that happens to all of us, right? Stuff does not satisfy. Initially, it may be, give you a little bit of joy, a little bit of happiness, but then it fades away so quickly. And then verse 11, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. Look what it says. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. In other words, the more you have, the more people will come after it, including the government. 
I know one thing, dealing with my mom after my, after my father passed away, is that when I had to deal with my, we, we weren't expecting my father passed away, so some of the finances were not where they ought to be, and I had to figure everything out. It took me about a year to figure it out, but I found out that all the rules are written for the government. None of the rules are written for you. None of them. And if you break the rule, sometimes there's a 50% penalty. And that's not good, but that's the way it is. So the more money increases, the more people will stick their sticky fingers in your pocket to get it, right? Now, this is basic wisdom that comes from the Word of God. Next thing, verse 11. When goods, when good, uh, when good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their, to their owners except to look on? In other words, the more you have, the more you realize it does you no good. It doesn't really help you. Because if you have to move from one place to another, you have to take all this stuff with you. I mean, downsizing is a good thing. I, I've been thinking about it for years. You know? I need to get rid of that. I need to get rid of this. I need to get rid of that. So when it comes time, you know, you're moving around a little bit. You don't have to, you know, buy a U-Haul or rent a moving truck or you know what it, you know what it's about. When, you know, I didn't, you know, you open up that closet and you've been shoving stuff in there for 10 years. And then, oh, man, i got to pack this stuff away, uh, you know? But that's reality. It's re it, this is reality, and that's what wisdom is and truth is. It's real. I can feel it. I, I live it. I touch it. And then verse number 12 of Ecclesiastes. The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. In other words, the more you have the more you have to worry about. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. Man, this is true. Verse number 13, Ecclesiastes 5. Here is a grievous evil, which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. In other words, the, the more you have, the more you can't hurt yourself by holding on to it. The more you have, the more you hurt yourself by holding on to it. And then verse 14. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. See, the more you have, the more you have to lose. The more you have, the more you, you'll leave behind. You take nothing with you. You realize that, right? You take nothing with you. And Ecclesiastes goes on to say the, 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 the vanity that often happens is when people plan to leave money to their children and it never goes to them because something happens. And, in there's, and of course, in verse number 15, it says, as he had come uh, as he had come naked from his mother's womb so he will return as he came he will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand that's just downright truth also it shows uh, that false teachers fix people's attention on uncertain riches 
That's where what Paul said in 1 Timothy 6.17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but fix your hope on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. It also shows that false teachers are not giving out healthy spiritual food, but actually giving out poison. And, the, and what I mean by that is that materialism is poison. So what's the antidote? You know what the antidote is? Giving. Proper giving. Giving in worship. Giving is the only antidote to materialism. Trust God. It says in Timothy, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and, sh- and ready to share with people, storing up for themselves treasure on a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So the act of giving scripturally, whether it be money or time or wisdom or gifts or talents, Giving is a vivid reminder that it's all about God, not about us. What we have comes from the hand of God. We're to use it properly. Giving is a joyful surrender to a greater person and a greater agenda. When we give to the work of God, we're giving to the work in the world of bringing lost souls to salvation in Jesus Christ. That's where you invest. Giving affirms Christ's lordship. It it actually dethrones us and exalts him. Because the portion that we are making, we we know 100% comes from him. A portion we're to give back to God in worship. Thank you, Lord, for how you provided for our needs. And then giving shifts our interest from earth to heaven, from self to God. Now, it ends like this. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 3. It says, And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. That these false teachers have a certain end. False teachers may feel secure in their message of peace, peace, and think they are being blessed by God. However, The Lord God is not asleep on his throne. That he will act decisively and quickly. In fact, the the sentence has already been pronounced. So the good Lord only delays to give people time to repent. You say, well, why, why isn't the Lord judging right now? Why isn't he coming right now? Well, We're getting to that. But in chapter 3 and verse number 15, it tells us, it says this, and regard the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved uh, brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. So God is delaying his coming. He is delaying his judgment. For what reason? So the gospel can go to the last Gentile. And God only knows that. And then the That program of the church ends, God takes the church out, and then the Antichrist has full reign on manipulating people with his deceptive 
plan to make himself God and get people to worship him. See, that's where it's headed. So, see, the point is live for God now. So what have we learned? We've learned that the threat of false teachers and their doctrines is real, and it is upon the true church. It is not easily detected. It leads to hell by the signs of heaven. It denies the master and creator. It creates, it, it caters actually to the masters. It gives truth of bad name, and it condones loose living and greedy living. What's the antidote for that? Add to your faith, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And his Holy Spirit, who indwells real believers, will grow you in holiness as you cooperate with him, and godliness will make you more discerning to identify and to avoid all forms of false teaching. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for the wisdom that rises up and the truth that rises up from Scripture. Lord, I only pray that you would take these truths and so embed them upon our heart that we would not forget them, that we would not wander away from them, that, Lord, they would, they would be ever before us so, Lord, we can grow to be godly and discerning and holy people and that, Lord, we can give you the praise for all that you have and will accomplish in our life, that we can lift up our eyes to you for whatever you've given us on this side of eternity. And that, Lord, we would always take a portion of what you have given to us and give it back to you because we want to worship you because of your truth, because of your character, because of your plan, because you love us and you first loved us. And, Lord, we want to grow in our love for you. So, Lord, add to our faith these things so we can be what we ought to be. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. It's a reminder that uh, we're still refraining from congregational singing at this time.